1970 and the citizens of Bucharest are on high alert. A vampire killer is on the loose claiming victim after victim. The police are arresting thousands of suspects but still can't find this man they call the Butcher of Bucharest until one bloodstained note blows the case wide open. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mysteries Abroad podcast. I am your host, Justin, and of course, I am joined by my wife, Megan. Hi, everyone. So we have got a really crazy story for you guys today, or I guess I should say I have got a crazy story for Megan and you guys today, because she has not heard this story yet. You guys, I literally got a notebook and a pen before this started, because Justin was like, this is a good one. It's kind of a long one and I'm like oh shoot I probably need to take notes because sometimes my brain just like shoots out information he gives me like what year it was and stuff and then later on I'm asking questions like wait a minute what year was this and then I I'm just like I need to keep up if it's gonna be that long I need to keep up so apparently he's got a really good one and I think the truth is she just tunes me out about 25 percent of the time so that might be true too (laughs) So before we get into this story, I do want to give a disclaimer that this one contains elements of serial murder, rape, and mutilation. If you may be sensitive to these topics, then you might want to skip this episode. And with that, let's get into it. In 1970, Romania is really struggling. They are under the thumb of Nicolae Kosciuszko their communist dictator leader. Now, Kosciuszko did disagree with Russia on some policy issues, which was really frowned upon at that time. This helped him become closer to the Western world. But make no mistake, he led a very tough communist regime. Romania was once known for its agricultural production, but during this time, they couldn't produce enough food for themselves. Their leader was taking anything of value in the country and exporting it for profit. The people were starving and doing without basic necessities. The government would turn off the power at night, so certain areas didn't even have the lights on. It was just dark and cold, and the terrible economy meant people were really struggling. In the spring of 1970, though, Bucharest had a new problem. Violence began to occur at night. Not just any violence, but women specifically were being attacked. In the beginning, the pattern was easy to spot. It was always waitresses being attacked as they walked home from work at night. Remember, there were areas with no lights on, so this made it really easy for a prowler to be out and about. In total, from 1970 to 1971, the police were able to link 16 attacks to a single attacker. The details are graphic, so I won't cover them all, but just know that most of these included some elements of murder and rape. One victim was even stabbed multiple times while her blood was being sucked out. Some women even had bite marks on their head, chest, groin, and legs and some even had their genitalia bitten out. At first, the police didn't realize that they were dealing with a serial murderer, but once they started putting the pieces together from these different attacks, they really saw what was going on. In particular, after the 10th victim, her name was Georgita Popa, she had 48 stab wounds, and her genitalia had been bitten out. That was when the police really kicked things into high gear. They came up with an operation that they called Operation Vulture, and personally for me, I think that was a terrible name for this. Oh, yeah. Like, vultures hang around dead corpses. So oh, yeah, that's when you bad think taste. about it, it's like you could have, you know, maybe there's a different animal you could have picked, like yeah. a defending lion or something. I don't know. But they called it Operation Vulture. Now, Operation Vulture had 6,000 men from various law enforcement agencies that they basically employed there into Bucharest. And they just like sent them out on the streets, especially at night. But daytime, nighttime, all the time, these guys were out there all over. They had 100 cars and 40 motorcycles. 
They also went around to medical personnel, night bus and tram operators, uh, bar employees, places like that where they thought that this killer might go to or might retreat to after a kill, something along those lines. And they would tell these people, hey, you need to watch out for this. Let us know if you see someone that meets this description, that type of thing. What kind of description did they give the people? Not much. They had very, very little to go on. He would he would stalk these victims, and like I said, it was usually women leaving uh, wherever they worked at. Most of them were waitresses, though that did change towards the end. Like the last few victims weren't just waitresses, but that was really his thing to start with. And he would stalk them a few nights to see what route they were walking home, and then right before they would get home, sometimes right in front of their house, he would attack them then and rape them or and or murder them or whatever you know whatever would go yeah, down but with that how victim. do you how are they telling people like hey look out for this person when i think it could be I think anybody it, it wasn't just look out for this person but it was like look out for somebody showing up at 1 a.m super sweaty you know or oh, maybe okay. with mud on his clothes or blood on his clothes or just basically anything. telling everybody yeah. hey this is happening right be on alert right so with all this activity they actually questioned or and or asked for the identification from 8,000 individuals on the street, people that they thought maybe looked suspicious at night or something. And they made over 2,500 arrests in a short amount of time here within a couple of months. Wow. And they still didn't have. Yeah, they still didn't have their guy. So they suspected out of 8,000 people that they questioned, they suspected 2,500 enough to make an arrest and still didn't have their man. With all that, the attacks and murders continued. They knew they were looking for someone horrible based on the fact that he was cutting off clothes, he was dragging his victims around, he was biting off their flesh, he was hacking them up with whatever weapons. He would bring knives sometimes because there were stab wounds, but then he would also bring other things like uh, p- uh, steel pipes, he would bring uh, axe, stuff like that, you know, like a blunt object in a lot of cases. And he would also rape several of his victims while they were unconscious. They figured him to be very aggressive and impulsive, uh, he even exhibited signs of vampirism. For instance, his second victim, Florissa Marshu, she was attacked and dragged to a nearby cemetery where she was raped. She was also stabbed multiple times, and then he was walking her home. They're not really sure what the purpose of that was, but he didn't kill her, and he was walking her down the road back to her house, but he had stabbed her several times to poke through her skin, and he was sucking the blood out of her. And fortunately, a truck driver was coming by and saw, I guess, this woman clearly in distress and bleeding and a man sucking on her arm or something. And the guy stopped and rescued, rescued her, you know, but of course the attacker got away. They also noticed that he would bite off women's genitalia and parts of their breasts sometimes. And the missing pieces of flesh were never found at the crime scene. So they assume that he was probably eating it which is really strange. Now, you might think well, maybe he was keeping it as like a souvenir or something, but these pieces of flesh were never found when they eventually arrested him either, so it's assumed he was he was eating this stuff. Oh, my gosh. He even had necrophiliac tendencies because he would often rape his victims after they had died. That's a lot of disgusting stuff to talk about, honestly. I felt weird researching this story and going over all this and then just reading it off here. That's... I can't imagine what goes through somebody's head to participate in some of these things. It's Mm -hmm. just, ugh. Finally, one night, a breakthrough occurs in the case after a medical diagnosis note was found at the crime scene with his 11th victim. The victim was Michelle Ursu. They found some of the attacker's hairs in her fingers as well as she was presumably fighting him off. 
With that note, they were able to locate a doctor's office, which gave them 85 suspects, and they narrowed that down to 15. They were all students at the university. They started searching dorm rooms, and when they arrived at one dorm room that belonged to a young man named Eon Rimaru, he wasn't there, but they found the murder weapons inside the dorm room, and so they knew that they had the right guy. He was tracked down a couple days later and was arrested on May 27, 1971. So who is Eon Rimaru, and how did he become known as the Butcher of Bucharest, or the Blondes Killer, or the Vampire Killer of Bucharest? Eon was from a troubled home in the town of Caracal. And if that sounds familiar to you, that's from our last episode. Caracal was the town in Romania where there was a serial rapist and murderer in that town. I was trying to figure out why that sounded familiar. I was like, wait a minute, did we travel through Caracal? Nope, that was was the last episode. And that guy was a serial rapist and murderer there as well. But now that was much, much more recent. That was in the 2000s and this Mm -hmm. was in the 70s. But still, that's, that's an interesting thing. So his parents fought a lot, and his dad eventually left, and he went to go become a night tram driver in Bucharest. And as a teen, Eon caused a huge scandal in town for having a sexual relationship with his teacher's underage daughter. He was also convicted of aggravated theft at age 18. So he has not been the best citizen, I would say, through his teen years. In 1966, he went to college but really struggled and had to repeat two years of his school until he was arrested. They asked his professors, you know, to kind of describe him so they could learn a little bit more about him after he was arrested, and they did not give him glowing reports. Uh, They said that he was shy and semi-literate. They also said that he had very poor vocabulary and an extremely narrow range of interests. His roommates also reported that he was really weird. Uh, They tried to avoid him as much as possible. Um, When he would become really mad, he would actually harm himself, and they found him to have lots of cuts on his arms and legs and stuff like that. And he was also known to prowl around outside the dorms of some of the girls at night. So when you start to look at all these things, it's really adding up to disaster. I mean, it's, it's like they're really building on each other over the years and getting a little bit worse. Yeah, it's unfortunate because hearing that is like he obviously needed some help and he just wasn't getting help. And maybe all of this could have been avoided if he had the proper help. Yeah, maybe if somebody was paying attention and said, wait a second, all this, you know, you see one of these things and you're you're not like, oh, this is a serial murderer. But (laughs) but you start to see this pattern over the years. All these things are adding up and getting a little bit worse. And I mean, he's, he's harming himself and other people and stalking people, and it's like, oh, this isn't looking good. Yeah. So after his arrest, the police need to continue the investigation. They need to figure out how they're going to pin him on the charges that they do have and also figure out how much other stuff he did do that they don't even know about yet. They couldn't get him to talk, couldn't get him to confess to anything or admit anything or really give them any information whatsoever. So they came up with a plan that they were going to leave the room, they were going to send in an undercover cop, and he would sort of be... Eon's roommate, I guess, in the cell there, and he was going to pretend to be a thief, and the plan worked perfectly because Rimuru just started spilling all the beans and told the police officer all sorts of stuff. I think it's mind-blowing how much people run their mouths in jail. How much they fall for that. Oh my Like, how gosh. many stories do you know of where it's like, oh, they just sent another cop in there. Right. Or and even they're if talking it's, to their cellmate, like, that's a person you could trust. Yeah, like. exactly. And a lot of times it's not even a police officer. It is a legitimate cellmate. But they're like, hey, uh, 
officers, <laughs> I've got some information here I can trade, you know? And yeah. it's like, that guy, you, you can't just trust that guy just because he happens to be in the same cell with you. I know. It always blows my mind when I hear stories like that because I'm like, I don't trust enough people in the real world, yeah. much less going to a prison and, you yeah. know, my cellmate, I would trust that person. Like, no way. Yeah. And it's probably not even a cellmate he had spent much time with. I mean, he was just arrested. Yeah. Like, they're still questioning him. <laughs> and so this is probably just another, or in his mind, this is just another criminal that's just being in, uh, questioned right now, and he's just automatically going to open up. It's crazy. But good thing he did yeah. because, you know, yeah. now they got him. And once once they had some of that stuff on him, they said, hey, we know, we know it's you. You've already been talking to one of the officers, so you might as well tell everything else. After two months of interrogations he had admitted to 23 very serious crimes. In fact, he had only been arrested on three of the murders. Like, that was all they had on him to begin with, and they still needed really time onto it, but they had enough to arrest him. The rest of them, which was another murder, six attempted murders, five rapes, one attempted rape, and seven thefts of various degrees he confessed to while he was being investigated. One interesting thing is police also began to learn that his dad knew all about his crimes, and may have even encouraged him to commit some of them. They arrested him three times over the months while they were investigating Eon, but they just couldn't make anything stick. They would have like a family member saying, oh yeah, no, I know he was talking about this, but then whenever it would actually come time for it, the family member would take back the testimony, and so the police just never could actually get him to stay in prison. But what's really strange is, after his dad's death, it was discovered that he was also a serial killer. Oh my god! So he is another killer from Caracal. So this is three that we have discovered in the last week of reading here. So I did a little bit of digging on his dad, and obviously his dad wasn't the story for tonight's story. But I was curious, like, what, what were his crimes like? What did he have going on? And I found some really strange things. So... He committed four murders back in the 40s. And remember, this is the 70s. So he committed four murders back in the 40s. His victims were all women, just like his sons. He killed them with blunt objects, just like most of his son's victims. He also used bad weather as a cover-up, just like his son did. Because his son would wait on like a foggy night or a storm to be coming through or something, something strange in the weather and use that as a cover. He would go out those nights. What do you mean a cover? Like... I guess, you know, if it's really windy, um, you know, maybe there's a little bit of cover noise there. If it's foggy, people can't see as well, okay. you know, so it's like you're just using some different elements of the weather to sort of give you a little advantage while you're out there. Okay. So his dad did that and And his that. son did it, which I, I mean, I can look at that and say, okay, his dad could have said, son, if you don't want to get caught, you need to do it on a stormy night, you know, yeah, <laughs> or something along those lines. Like he really could have talked him through it. This almost seems like he learned it yeah. from someone. And the weirdest coincidence, well, I don't, I don't know if it's a coincidence or if they planned all this, but the weirdest fact about it all is their first victims even had very similar names. His dad first killed Elena Udrea, and his son first killed Elena Oprea. That is too similar. That's crazy, isn't it? And they didn't know these girls, so if... If he did say, I'm going to find a girl with a really f similar name, he had to go out and find some waitress with that name, you know? 
And that would take like, some time. Yeah, exactly. You just go around questioning all the waitresses. Hey, what's your last name? Does it sound like Adrea? You know? I don't know if that was what he was trying to do or if that just was a was strange a coincidence. coincidence. Yeah. That, I mean, that's almost too, too similar, Could really. Could happen. Anyway, back to Elon's case. So he went back and forth during his whole investigation and during the trial. Sometimes he would claim insanity, and he would say he had no idea what he was doing, and so there was no way he could be guilty. Other times, he would basically be claiming that he was guilty and telling them what he did and, and almost bragging about it, like a lot of these types are. You know, it seems like a lot of these serial killers, they're, once they do get caught, they're ready for the world to know, you know. So he kind of kept going back and forth. But he really believed that he was going to be seen as insane. And he, he really believed in his trial that whenever it comes to the end of it, I am guilty, but my insanity will get me off, basically. And whenever it came to the end, the judge said that the insanity deal didn't matter, and he didn't think he was insane. He thinks he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, they said Elon was in complete shock. He had no idea. He wanted to reverse his plea. He wanted to take back all of his statements. Like, he just started lashing out. He wanted to change everything, but, it, I mean, it was too late at that point. The judge sentenced him to death by firing squad. On October 23, 1971, Elon was brought to his execution. He had to be dragged from the van to the post where he was tied up. He was raging like a madman and was trying to bite through the constraints so that he could get away. He was screaming stuff at them, squirming around so much. He actually started twisting around the pole like they had tied him to. So he would swing around to the back of it. like He, he got loose enough that he could move around, but he couldn't leave the pole. And so it made it really hard for the execution squad to shoot accurately at him. Like they actually had to shoot him several, several times because he was just moving so much. Wow. Yeah. And it's like, you're not going to get away from it, this. Like yeah. you might as well make this as peaceful as possible. Yeah. Like let him just do it at that point. Like, I mean, granted, that's a horrible situation to find yourself in. But I think if it was me, I'd be like, y'all, you take a step closer. Like. I don't yeah. want you to miss, you know, hit exactly, make no, this I quick. Don't want, I don't want to be shot in the leg and yeah. then the arm and then, like, eventually it happened. Like, just yeah. if it's going to happen, let it happen. They said before he died, the last thing he said was uh, he, he shouted at them and said, call my father so he can see what's happening to me. Make him come. He's the only guilty one. I want to live. No, I don't think no, so. No, I don't think so either, but I do think, his dad got away with this in some way or another. I really feel like his dad, his dad wasn't out there committing these crimes, but I do think he coached him through it. Oh, absolutely. Like he was like the serial murderer coach. Wait or a something. minute. So his dad was never convicted of any of his crimes? No, they actually didn't find out about his crimes until after his death. In the 40s, there were these four unsolved murders that occurred. And so then you fast forward to after the son dies, and I think the dad dies like two years later. Then they start looking at things, and they realize that his boot print matches a boot that was there. Like, he always wore the same size military boot, and they had a fingerprint, which I think is incredible. I didn't realize they were, like, fingerprinting in the 40s, but I guess they were. They had a fingerprint from the crime scenes, and they happened to check it against his dad's. And I say happened to check. I don't know if it was actual, like an accident or if they suspected him of it because, I mean, clearly during his son's trial, they arrested him three times for suspected involvement and just couldn't pin it on him. So I think they always kind of had an eye on him. 
but it wasn't until after his dad died that they found out his dad was a, a serial murderer. The real question is, what is happening in Curacao? I wonder, like, what the statistics would be. Like, if you just looked at any random city, how many serial killers would you find in 100 years' time? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I wonder if there's, like, hot spots around the world. Yeah. For whatever reason that we don't know. That would be really interesting to research. Say there's something in the water or something. Or it could be. I mean, there could, honestly, I've never thought about this before. (laughs) But there could be a lot of factors, honestly. There could be some kind of chemical there. There could be um, something that's affecting people, you know, mentally. Well, and in this case, it was a son and a father. Mm -hmm. And so maybe if, maybe you might find more serial killers if they're like related, if they're in the same family. So of course they might be from the same town. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that some people have speculated before, um, some mental health professionals believe that some people carry genes that make them more susceptible to becoming a, a murderer or something. And so it's possible that if that is true, that this man could have carried it and could have passed it down to his son. Mm-hmm. I also find it very weird that this is happening in Romania, where obviously Transylvania is. Oh, yeah. So you hear about vampires. Um yeah, the supposed Dracula's castle is in Romania. Matter of fact, that's right up above Bucharest, if I'm not mistaken. That's yeah. only like an hour or two hours away, I believe, something like that. It almost makes you wonder if there's still like a group of people who practice this. I know there are definitely people all around the world who, I guess you would, could probably say like practice vampirism. Um Because I was actually watching a documentary about that not too long ago, and... Uh, a lot of people kind of practice this in New Orleans, and people give consent. Like, they say, I want to sign up for this, like, wow, suck my blood. And so they go to these vampires and consent to it. Wow. Yeah. How, how do you even find a vampire or someone that wants their blood sucked? I mean, how? <laughs> wow. I don't know, but I think think it's more common than you think probably so it's like secret societies you know i think there's a lot of these secret societies out there that we don't even realize are in operation but they have people all over the place and you're right it could be something like this you know um i think history has shown that dracula is not exactly what the storybooks make him out to be but he was a horrible person who did some really horrible things and it could be that that he was part of some secret society or founded some secret society or something that has continued over the years down to these men here who knows i really wouldn't doubt that like that seems very plausible to me yeah definitely plausible it just kind of blew my mind when i was watching that documentary um about the vampires in new orleans and i was like people actually give consent for this that is wild but if people aren't consenting to it obviously these vampires And I'm using quotation marks, you can't see that. But obviously these vampires would think they're doing the right thing or think that they're doing what they should be doing for whatever reason, but they can't get anybody to give them consent to do this. And so they 
feel like they're forced to kill somebody, which is probably why, oh, I can't remember her name, but the girl that you were talking about who, for whatever reason, he didn't kill and someone drove up. And I almost wonder if she consented to that. And I was thinking that when you were talking about it. I'm like, I wonder if she consented to that. And for whatever reason, I mean, he just decided, well, I don't have to kill kill you you now. Yeah, I don't have to kill you. Like, I've, this is all I wanted. Maybe he gave her that ultimatum or something. Yeah, and, and maybe she was he, like, that's better than being killed. Right, and maybe he gave that ultimatum to all of his victims, Oof. but they said no, and then, you know. Either way, it's a weird, weird situation. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's going to do it for today's episode. I think this was a very, very dark one, or at least I felt like it was, certainly while I was going through this one. I was like, wow, this is probably the darkest thing that we have covered on here. Be sure to check back next week because we will be in Bulgaria. So we'll have a few stories coming out of Bulgaria. And don't forget that we do upload twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. So be on the lookout for those episodes. And thanks for listening.